0: i uh-huh. uh-huh. everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, For each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Jack Russell and Elsa Bloodstone from Werewolf by Night. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, John Dorowski.
1: I just need to light my sousaphone on fire, and then I'll be ready to go. Oh, you know, it's listed in the
0: credits as a tuba, so I think we're going
2: gonna... <laughs> to... It's a marching instrument. The marching form of the of the tuba is the sousaphone.
0: I, yeah, know, I think there are marching the tubas. I believe it baller listed as, as, as Flaming Tuba. Mm. <laughs> flaming Tuba player, player I think. Well, <laughs> I no, the, t- the player fun. was not on fire, just the tuba. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also, Producer Andrew will be joining us for, Hello. Um, for the discussion. Uh, it's a minor part of the film, but we will be touching on the Flaming Tuba or sousaphone later on
2: in the discussion. I I think the first time I watched it, that's when I decided I was all in uh, on oh, this special. I was like, okay, I've, I've enjoyed everything else. I've really liked some things up until this point. But when I saw that, I said, okay, I don't care what else happens. <laughs> I'm all in.
0: Yeah. And I, I will just say the best part is that there's no explanation of it or and they don't dwell on it. It's just there. And if you're like half paying attention, you're going to miss it. And it's gone. Mm-hmm.
1: It's just Uh, such a striking visual and something unique in this uh, TV special that was uh, really built on homaging a lot
0: of the 1930s monster films. Yes, well, we, we are talking about Werewolf by Night, which, as John said, was a TV special. It was produced by Marvel Studios as a Disney Plus exclusive, but it's not a full film or a miniseries. It's just a 50 minute kind of uh, short film and it was released on october 7th 2022 it starred gail garcia bernal as jack russell and laura donnelly as elsa bloodstone it was written by heather quinn and peter cameron and directed by michael Jacchino. and it tells the story of a group of monster hunters convening after the death of ulysses bloodstone to determine who will inherit the mystical bloodstone um I presume our stories of how we came to it are all pretty similar, but just in case, John, do you remember how you came to it? Um, Marvel,
1: I, I mean, I follow Marvel and a lot of their uh, what they produce, both mostly in comic books but also on their film and television side. and so you know I followed the announcements of this and
0: was excited for when it came out. Uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty much the same for me. Uh, just saw the trailer when it was well. Saw that they announced they were doing a werewolf by night special, and I was intrigued and then I saw the trailer and I liked the tone that the the teaser had uh, even more than like the idea of a werewolf by night special. Because you know, you never know what direction they're gonna they're gonna go with a property like that. But when I saw the teaser, I'm like, oh, I am intrigued. And then
2: I I really did enjoy it when I watched it last year.
0: Andrew, pretty much the same for you.
2: Yeah, basically basically the same. I think I remember like I was unsure based on the trailer whether or not I would I would be interested and I mean we've talked about this I'd say extensively on the on the podcast that we are not a horror film family mm-hmm. but we do like classic films and
0: oh, I'm all in on the universal monster era and, and so the, the 40s yeah
2: right and so this was like okay well, marvel's doing 40s. a a spooky thing but it's it's like an homage but it also it wasn't an homage in the sense of like making fun of it. It was trying to be like, it. it's not trying to be like really scary, mm-hmm. but it is trying to be a little spooky, scary. Like it, it's a very unique tone in terms of, of horror or monsters or terror and also like homaging, but not, it's not doing satire, right? It's not being a satire of the universal monsters. It is right. taking it seriously as like, this was a way they made film and it was scary for people Mm -hmm. and and there's moments in this that's like it's not played for laughs but like you can both be scared of it and and laugh i'm sure we've talked about before like the the blurring of the line between like horror and comedy yeah and this is this is in a very interesting place for that
0: Okay, a little bit of trivia about this film. This was Giacchino's first major directing credit. Previously, he had directed a short film and a Star Trek short, but he had also previously scored many projects that you listeners are familiar with. He has an Oscar for his music from Up and an Emmy for his music from the TV show Lost, and he has written for many very ra- recognizable properties, Star Wars, Marvel, DC, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, Jurassic World, Um, and he is also, Pixar. yeah, yeah, a lot of Pixar. And he's currently developing a remake of the classic B sci-fi movie "Them" uh, as a directing project. It said, but I could not find like what stage of development that is in. Uh, John, you put together some trivia about the Marvel horror properties, which "Werewolf by Night" is part of Marvel's horror line.
1: Yes. So to set this up, we have to go back and discuss what everyone really turns in to listen to this podcast for comic book history, uh, comic books, like all popular culture mediums when they're first introduced are controversial and, uh, comic books faced a lot of criticism from government and parental groups throughout the forties. And in the early fifties, it started to really come to a head and with the introduction of horror comics and crime comics, which became very popular and uh, with readers, but not popular with adults. <laughs> and this came to a head with the Senate hearings about the influence of media on juvenile delinquency. Comic books were just a small part of that, but uh, changed the course of the industry because they instituted a self-censoring code called the Comics Code Authority. And as part of the 1954 code, it said scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead torture vampire and vampirism ghouls cannibalism and werewolfism are prohibited basically saying you can't do any horror comics and uh that worked for a while but by the late 60s the uh publishers were chafing under these rules and they were also seeing that some companies were publishing black and white magazines that were not under the code and (laughs) could get away with a lot more Because they were magazines, not
0: comic books, John.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And it's uh, again came to the head when the government asked Stanley to publish a anti-drug storyline and he went to the comics code and the uh, owners and said, hey, the government's asking me to do this. And they said, okay, well, that's against the code, so no, but we'll revise the code. Stanley published that story without the seal of approval of the code, but uh, just a few months later, another famous drug story from Green Lantern with the famous cover of his sidekick ward, Speedy shooting heroin on the cover, uh, was published. And those are, those two stories are just a couple of months apart Mm -hmm. and that's how quickly they changed. So this 1971 code says scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead or torture shall not be used vampire schools and werewolves shall be permitted to be used when handled in the classic tradition of such as Frankenstein, Dracula or other high caliber literary works written by Edgar Allan Poe, Saki, Conan Doyle or other authors whose works are read in schools throughout the world. So, still gatekeeping, but now allowing monsters. And so what were the first monsters that were published? Any guesses?
0: Uh let's see. This is, I well I know I know what some of Marvel's horror line were, so there's yeah. two Dracula. Yeah,
1: yeah, so given the you know the it has to be based on high literary yeah. high quality literary sure. works, first things were uh swamp monsters.
2: So, so, yeah, so man Thing and Swamp Thing?
1: Yeah, so Man Thing first appeared in Savage Tales number one in May nineteen seventy one by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway with art by Gray Morrow. And Tagline, whatever knows fear burns at the touch of the man thing. Uh, over at DC, Swamp Thing by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson first appeared in House of Secrets number 92 in July 1971, so just a couple of months apart. Ween and Conway were roommates at the time. <laughs> but they have always maintained that the, that the simultaneous creation of their Swamp Monsters was a coincidence. I,
0: well, it's not just the creation of these Swamp Monsters. There is a lot of visual similarity uh, between these oh, that yeah. makes fans be like, uh, who's ripping off who? <laughs> yeah, so they,
1: they have always maintained it's just a coincidence. They just both had the idea at the same time.
2: <laughs> um, I mean, I mean you up... could say simultaneous influence, like something was in that apartment.
0: Yeah, like discussions of environmentalism yeah. or something like that.
1: Yeah, we, we don't know. Um, but this opened the floodgate for a lot of monster titles. Marvel in particular flooded the market. Uh, they published like 20 horror comics and seven black and white magazines, which forced some other companies out of business because they were taking up so much space on the newsstand. Uh, so among these other characters was Werewolf by Night which was created by Roy Thomas and Gene Thomas and first appeared in Marvel Spotlight number no. two in February, 1972 written by Jerry Conway and drawn by Mike Ploog. And this was the story of Jack Russell, who on his 18th birthday learns that he's inherited the family curse of lycanthropy.
0: And now knowing it's a family curse, it born. may make it, it may, the family might've been playing with that when they named him Jack uh, with the last name Russell. I,
2: I told Kestra last night, I was like, so they keep saying, they they say his name Jack a lot. Like, his full name's Jack Russell, and she kind of got a kick out of it.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes. This is definitely definitely a pun. Um, Ulysses Bloodstone, who plays into this story, was a caveman granted longevity and other powers by the Blood Gem, and first appeared in Marvel Presents number one in October 1975 by John Warner and Mike Vosberg. Uh, he subsequently died in a backup story in 1978's Rampaging Hulk number 8, and that was part of this thing where Marvel fled the market, and for four or five years, the monster stories were very popular, but by 1975, it was starting to die down. Also, uh, the president at Marvel was misreporting publishing numbers, and when the owners found out, they put someone else in and basically said, all right, we need to cut the line in half.
0: Yeah, cancel anything that's (laughs) below this line,
1: basically. So, uh, most of the monster books were canceled. Elsa Bloodstone was created by Dad Abnett and Andy Lanning with art by Michael Lopez in Bloodstone number one in December 2001. But she wasn't really popularized until she became part of 2006's Next Wave by Warren Ellis and Stuart Emmerman, which really defined her character as, um, you know, British working class attitude sassy uh, sassy you know not takes not taking anything from anybody Uh
0: uh-huh
1: yeah and uh so a lot of these characters are just part of the tapestry of the marvel universe they sit in the background and come up every once in a while but there is a new werewolf by night one shot featuring jack russell and elsa bloodstone that is being published this
0: week of recording yeah you know marvel the 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 tail wagging the dog of these media <laughs> properties uh, where <laughs> a lot of these characters begin in, in comic books. Then as soon as they're adapted, you know, the, the comic books adapt to whatever the media adaptations of them are rather than continuing their own thing. Um, all right. Well, we're going to do a full summary of the movie special. But before we do that, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and we especially want to thank any of the of you who are supporting us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support us with at, uh, at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes. In which we should talk about the media that we've been consuming that we're not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And we also just acknowledge that I have won the uh, fantasy box office game for this year. The I'll game
2: has not been
0: called. <laughs> there is
2: still time on the clock
0: aquaman the lost kingdom could really come through for you sure all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss did i get the subtitle of that aquaman movie correct
2: yeah i think lost kingdom okay all right now
0: comes on <laughs> to the full dis- uh, spoiler summary of werewolf by night the famous monster hunter Ulysses Bloodstone has died. He was the wielder of the mystical Bloodstone, and several monster hunters are invited to take part in a contest to see who will now take possession of it. His widow, Varusa, welcomes them, then opens Ulysses' casket to reveal that his corpse has been turned into a Frankenstein monster esque animatronic with a recorded message to welcome them. Like think like a carnival, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, animatronic thing. This was a just a fantastic touch. And I found out, look at the special features, this wasn't like an actor that they then CGI'd into looking more It's, it's just a the thing. They built an animatronic for this. Just excellent touch uh, for practical effects there. Uh, the Bloodstone is going to be attached to the back of a monster. Then the monster will be let loose in a garden labyrinth that is on Bloodstone Manor. Every manor needs... Garden labyrinth. We know this. This is no one questioned this. Okay, uh, and also within that that uh, labyrinth, there will be a mausoleum with and crypts. I, and, I, I was gonna say there's a crypt. Yeah. Uh, um, let's see. Controversially, Ulysses' estranged daughter Elsa, and I've, the possessive form of Ulysses is hard for my my <laughs> my English speaking tongue to form. There, Ulysses' estranged daughter Elsa has come to participate. Uh among the other hunters is Jack Russell, and then Joven, Azarel, uh Lirin, and Barrasso, though their names really don't matter. No. <laughs> other than Jack not and Russell. very important. These these other well, characters. The- um it's it's apparent from I would say the moment the camera glances upon them, these are cannon fodder for monsters. <laughs> well, there's the fact that their names are never spoken in the special. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, none of them are actually based on existing Marvel characters. These are all uh, new creations for the special, which when Marvel has literally tens of thousands of characters (laughs) that, that they could have just plucked a name. They're like, Nope, not going to waste any existing intellectual property on these people. (laughs) So Jack is going to approach the labyrinth and a man playing a flaming tuba. I'm going to say though, someone has changed my script to read sousaphone here. (laughs) marches next to him during the hunt jack encounters elsa and suggests that they not attack each other even though the rules allow it then joven attacks them jack runs away after elsa escapes from joven she encounters uh let's see it's leon and kills him a monster reaches out and grabs jack from behind it's a little jump scare moment but jack reacts happily and explains to ted his friend uh that he's gonna free him from this hunt by blowing up a wall with this small explosive that he has you see Jack and the man thing, Ted, our old friends. Jack tells Ted to, to, to hide and goes looking for the right wall to bomb, <laughs> which I love that this is like part of his quest is like, which wall do I need to blow up here? <laughs> Got to make sure it's the outer wall. Uh, he runs and he's going to hide in a mausoleum, but a wounded Elsa is already there. They get locked in. Despite her standoffishness, they, they do bond a little bit just just a little bit uh they get out ted kills joven uh and then there's this comedy of error scenes where jack tries to plant the bomb on the wall and <laughs> it, it doesn't work and it's it, the timer's counting down and he's trying to get it in the right position it's played very well uh and then the wall explodes ted is going to go escape through that hole the bloodstone's going to come loose uh jack goes to pick it up but the bloodstone repels jack it rejects him from touching it and this reveals to everyone else that jack is a monster so he's he's I guess we should say he, he looks like a human with uh, some face makeup on mm-hmm. uh, at this point. Um, almost a, a little like unto like a Mexican day of the day, uh, day of the dead uh, makeup pattern. Um, but uh, there was no sign that he was a monster. Now Verusa is going to come and she's going to lock Jack and Elsa. She hates Elsa. Oh, oh <laughs> that's I hate Elsa. Uh, she's going <laughs> to lock them up together. And uh, then Jack's like, don't worry, I'm not going to turn into a monster for several days. And then Elsa's like, the Bloodstone can turn you into a monster. And then so he's going to begin aggressively smelling her. (laughs) Like just grabbing her arm and smelling. And she's like, what are you doing? He's like, I have to remember you when I change. And he says, make eye contact with me when I'm a monster. And then uh, Rusa comes and uses the bloodstone to activate his monstrous form. And this turns him into a werewolf. This is an excellent scene where it is um, an homage to the Lon Chaney werewolf, but it's also not because it's done in shadows. Like it, it's a slow push on Elsa as there's flashing lights that make a shadow form of him transforming into the monster in kind of the sage stages of Lon Chaney turning into the werewolf in the classic uh wolfman movie I- it's happening through shadow form and it's all done in like the slow take pushing in on Elsa Bloodstone and it's it's done marvelously well there's actually several long takes that i i really did enjoy at where it doesn't feel like a first hand director this feels like someone who's very confident in the craft mm-hmm. uh that they're doing it um So now Jack is a werewolf. But sometimes now, like when we get werewolves, there are these CGI monstrosities. This is just a man in makeup like Lon Chaney. And it is perfect. It is exactly what it should be for this particular film. So um, let's see. You know, long story short, Jack is going to get out of the cage. And he and Elsa are going to just take out everyone. (laughs) That's there. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, I will say, the most gruesome. As far as like blood that any Marvel property gets, it's all black and white. I guess I should have said this. This is a black and white film, uh, except the the Bloodstone glows red uh, whenever they're, they're showing the Bloodstone on screen. It's glowing red, but everything else is just classic black and white. Uh, but there is I mean, it looks like, uh, you know, black splatter that happens whenever someone gets wounded. And some of this sprays around and some of it does the Guillermo del Toro, like hitting the camera lens kind of jump there mm-hmm. for the audience. Um, so uh, before anyone watches this with young kids, just make sure you're comfortable with that. Um, well, I would recommend not, but if your young kids are okay with that, <laughs> now you know. <laughs> um, let's see. So everyone dies, uh, except for Jack and Elsa, uh, uh, that we see at this point. And then Jack is about to attack Elsa, but she makes eye contact with him, and he smells her, and then he runs away. But then we find out Verusa has survived the bloodbath Uh, and she's about to kill Elsa. But then Ted arrives from nowhere and kills Varusa. Uh, Elsa then tells Ted which way Jack went. Elsa picks up the bloodstone, which has been glowing red in the black and white world, and color slowly returns and fills in around Elsa. We find out that she's been wearing red, which we had no idea.
2: Uh,
0: And then we're going to cut to a scene in a forest, which is also in color, where Jack wakes up in his human form. Ted has prepared him a cup of coffee and is playing somewhere over the rainbow in an old... On an old record player. They talk about getting sushi. The end. That last scene is one of my very favorite things Marvel's ever put to film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of Jack and Ted just hanging out in the forest on this little camping trip. Uh, obviously, the Somewhere Over the Rainbow is a nod to the sepia transformation to color in wizard of oz uh so it makes sense that it's there but they also did set up that ted probably grabbed this old record player from bloodstone manor because they had it playing some old records <laughs> during during the meeting there's um simultaneously i think this is a very light and straightforward story but you can tell enough craft and work was put in to make it right you know make everything interlock the way it's supposed to that i i don't really have any nits to pick other than uh, the level of gore that it gets to when, uh, you know, at the end, it's like, eh, I don't know that that's the right tone for what we've had so far. But other than that, really, I don't have any nits to pick about about it. John, what uh, what do you think about uh, Werewolf by Night?
1: Oh, it's an excellent production. Um, And like you said, you know, uh, for a first time, major filmmaker shows a lot of chops. now. He did go to film school. He mm-hmm. made there's a uh, separate Uh, not making of feature, but a separate feature called Director by Night, which is about Giacchino and partly working on this, but also a lot about his past um, and making films with his friends as kids. And so you can see all the background that, uh, like, yeah, this is kind of inevitable that he was going to direct something at some point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. A, yeah. The, and that. Uh. I. I only started that special. I was not able to. Um. To finish it before recording, but it really does kind of like humanize him as a storyteller, and it makes you appreciate the choices that he's making. Um. Yeah. And give you. Oh, we
1: should also, also mention he wrote the score for the
0: special as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting. It mentions that he he went to film school and was taking classes at Juilliard on the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like oh as i one see does. <laughs> you're one of those people
2: oh oh you're a genius
0: <laughs> yes um and then uh he begins by scoring video games some that are tied to some Steven Spielberg productions and that kind of gets him uh on i think it's jj abrams radar first and jj abrams yes. pulls him yeah, into him for... of his productions and as we noted in the trivia he is now um just scored so many major things, you know, major themes, and his music is—you've um, you've heard it, even if you don't know who the composer is at this point. Mm-hmm.
1: And and basically every award except the Tony.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, it it's got to come at some point. He's going to do something, right? Eh, if it, if that's what he wants, <laughs> Andrew, do you have any major reactions or, or initial reactions about *Werewolf by Night* that you
2: want to share? I just. I really, I don't know. It's really hard to nail down like what it is that I like about it so much. But I remember just like latching onto it so completely early on in the film, even even before the the flaming tuba. I was like, I think I really like this. And I, I don't know what it is to try and describe it for someone else or to say like, oh, this is the kind of thing that I really like. But this had it. You know, this like this has one of those like indescribable. There's something to it—a tone, or a style, or an attitude. It's really smart, but it's not showing off. But it, it like everything's really good in it. But it but it doesn't feel like he's trying to show off.
0: Yeah, I would say like it is doing exactly what it needs to at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, uh, I am sure there there must exist an impulse to like go over the top to to push boundaries you know when you're given this chance but i, I think every choice is is pretty spot on to mm-hmm. tell the story that he wants and he doesn't make it try to be more than it needs to be this is just kind of a marvel introduction to horror that's doing as you said a loving homage to classic horror and it doesn't try to do anything more than that there's um some depth in terms of like like uh um jack and elsa like their relationship has changed and they seem different as people at the end of the story from where they begin but it's not like you know shooting for the the deepest theme imaginable about this it's like can, mm-hmm. can we can we do this black and white <laughs> homage which oh, i will i meant to say this in the trivia uh it was shot in color and it wasn't until um he showed a test to the marvel studios in black and white uh after everything w- was done that they said oh okay you can do that <laughs> oh. Uh, that
2: that's you know, wild.
0: Yeah, because it, it feels like this was always meant to be. Yeah, it, and there's it, like it feels made for that black and white because it, it, it gives yeah, you it was, the uh, some of the like the the classic film projector artifacts, like a little bit of dust and the the splice spots in the in the upper right corner show up uh, throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, throughout, you know, those were all added to make it feel like you're watching, you know, the the, the old movie.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, it's such an homage to those Universal monster films. It, like you, you would say it can't work except
0: in black and white. It wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And particularly when you see at the end, when the, when it goes into a world of color, um, I mean, it's surprising, but it's also, it's so saturated and so rich in the color that it, it felt like that would be too much for like a the full hour.
2: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, um, I, I watched the, uh, the documentary for it. And like all of the, the monster heads on the wall, those are like fully realized, colorful, like brightly colored. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of them had like some really bright like tans and reds. And I was like, Oh, that's all lost in the black and white. But I think it's better in the black and white because some, some stuff with the black and white becomes it's more hidden. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't see as much detail on things in the black and white. And I was like, I think it's actually, it, it hits the tone better in the black and white because I can't quite see that monster clearly. And if I oh. could see it completely clearly, then it's like, oh, well, then it's not as, as mysterious and evocative. And it's, it certainly doesn't, like, give me the sense of, oh, that's a monster as much.
1: Yeah. And well, going in black and white really evokes the gothic a mm-hmm. lot better than if I'm in color. And uh, it forces you to engage a little more because you're using your imagination to fill in those gaps that would normally be filled in by color filming.
0: Yeah, and I, even the uh, the sets, like to me, there's so much that you can tell. Okay, they did this practically. This isn't, you know, on, uh oh, what's the name of the big Disney stage where they film all the Star Wars stuff? The but, volume. Uh, it's not the volume. on the volume. Yeah. It's not green screen. They built these practical sets, but also it felt just a little bit cheap like a 1930s movie set. Mm-hmm. Like uh, a little it, cheap and a the- little small. Yeah, it, but it's all practical. And I wonder if it would have felt too cheap if it was in high def in color. You know? Uh, mm mm-hmm. For, mm-hmm. for that, where it's like, oh, this isn't actually feeling like an homage, it just looks like this was a cheap production.
2: Well, and and I think the other thing with the black and white is it does different things with the light, I think, especially when you're talking about, like, the silhouette transformation, thinking of that being in color just mm-hmm. seems really wild, because the way they're getting the light for all of that is, like, these electric shocker things, and they're they're so bright, but they're, like, kind of small in frame, but they cast a big shadow and everything, it's like, well, that kind of feels like it was it was made for this black and white It's like, yeah, there's going to be these bright pops of pure white. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going to cast the shadow. And like and, it, and it's, you know, intermittent, right? As they as they shock and then they pull away and they shock and then they pull away and everything like that feels like it would be a huge mistake in color. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm very happy with what we got uh, for it. Just for all the like the tonal and the thematic things that you all are saying, it really does feel like black and white was the right choice uh, for telling this gothic Marvel story, for being an homage to 1930s Universal horror films, uh, for some of the way the, the the effects end up being feeling in the black and white versus what they would feel like in color. I think I think it definitely was the right choice.
2: I think the 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 true like genius of this is making so many of those perfect little choices it it, it elevates this more than having like one amazing fight sequence or one amazing bit of choreography or one amazing camera movement like no actually just having all of these small choices and having all of these you know moments where it's perfect okay this is a comedy beat and we're just going to nail it perfectly this is an emotional beat and we're going to you know get it just right just the right amount of of emotion and and tension to it and and all those kinds of things. All those little things add together to make this just really wonderful. I think of when I think it's even before the animatronic starts talking and um it, what's her name Varusa? Yeah, Varusa. Ver- she's got her Igor guy. <laughs> yes. And but um one great casting. Varusa, I recognize her as BB from Frasier and just mm-hmm. she's so good. In these kinds of things, but she walks behind the casket and you can see like a, a this side up, like crate panel <laughs> yes. on the back of the casket. And it's like, that is an amazing thing that is like, it's just a joke for us as the audience, like watching it. And as she walks by it, it's like, she's like trying to, she, so she's like reciting this dramatic thing. And she doesn't say anything as she walks behind the, the casket. And it's almost like she's looking at it. And it's like, I have to keep it together. This is supposed to be somber. Yes. <laughs> but I is. know that there's this dumb packaging feature on yeah, the back we, of this we, we casket.
0: The back of the casket, basically. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, like, it, like, it's like she
2: she oh. she has pause um, as she does this. She's like, oh, my gosh, we're I am trying to give this gravitas. <laughs> and, we and we're not so do,
0: We did not do the Steve Jobs and make the inside as beautiful as the outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, kind of perfectionism. <laughs> so the uh, the helper is Billy Swan is the name of the servant. Um, and I think you are going to talk about where you're going to mention the, when he goes and cranks the animatronic to get it, like oh, gear, uh, the that, gears is, that
2: is a great moment. But no, it, the moment I was really thinking of was like when she walks around the back of the yep. thing, and it's like, that's just a perfect tiny comedy beat. Another one of those, like if you're not paying full attention to the show, you're going to miss something fantastic.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the pace of this is actually really well done because we do get those moments of, uh, like long dread, like the walk to, like like the, you know, what is this man thing, you know, that, that we're going to get. We get a jump scare too. We get moments of battle, but we do also have, you know, uh, Jack and Elsa sitting in the mausoleum and, and talking to each other. And he's trying to talk her through tying the tourniquet correctly. And she's angry that he thinks she doesn't know how to tie a tourniquet. <laughs> like, this is my first tourniquet, Jack. <laughs> um, but but we we have, you know, the rise and fall of emotion and tension is is happening consistently uh throughout this and it does build towards um but like what you said like the well choreographed fight scene it builds towards a really long one take fight scene in a hallway um of the security guards just you know getting taken out by by the werewolf by night uh in the end but it is the one take uh you know which is kind of the the flashy show-offy um uh you know, move that a lot of directors do for for fight choreography. Um I saw the trivia it took two they did two takes and then felt like they had it uh on on the stunt men uh, performing that that slow push. Uh and and so right, bro, when we talking about like what up works, the fight. Oh, uh, go ahead. Bring up that hallway fight does
1: bring up a knit I need to pick. Oh, okay, go ahead. And that is that um as part of that they have a blood splatter that lands on the camera. Mm-hmm. And stays there, yeah. Which you know, partly to help obscure all the violence that's going on, and uh, but I don't like that in any film. Oh yeah, yeah. That, it, that not,
0: was what I wanted to mention. Like for my nit to pick, it's the the gore level feels out of place
2: for uh, the tone. No, artists. not the gore
1: level. No, not the gore level. It's the acknowledging that the camera is there.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. It's the and that takes the... me out of the film. That breaks the that breaks the illusion to some extent because it's like yeah, well, there's blood absolutely. on the camera. That means I have to know there's a camera. Yeah, yeah, that always takes me out of a film.
0: Yeah, it's it's and something so I, that uh, I never like. I I think I first saw kind of, I, and I'm sure it had happened sometime before, but it, it seems like Guillermo del Toro brought that more into the mainstream in the early 2000s. And it's uh, it's something that it does stick around. And it does like make you hyper aware of the you know, the, the, essentially the proscenium, you know, of uh, uh, that there's this barrier between the storyteller and the, uh, and the audience. Uh, But I was gonna say like, overall, I think the tone uh, uh, that uh, the the change of pace for this, you know, fairly tight uh, under an hour uh, special, I, I think it's handled pretty well. And I do also want to acknowledge that I think the, the very opening uh where they, they do some tweaks to like the, the Marvel special presentation. Uh I, I just loved all that in terms of, again, like this homage that um it creates a, a nostalgia in many ways for like s- things that weren't my childhood. <laughs> you know, yes, I watched the old, you know, universal horror uh, films, but uh you know, that, that wasn't like the, the contemporary media uh, of my childhood and the, the like special presentation by Marvel Studios stuff that felt like more like a seventies thing, but it just felt right to have on this.
2: There's there. I don't know why I have this in my head, but there's like a particular, and so maybe this associates more like directly with your childhood, but there's something about the eighties that was like trying to recapture stuff from those early Films, you know, black and white horror films and and the Universal monsters. There's something in my mind that is like, well, people who grew up in the 80s loved that stuff from the 30s.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's uh, it was something that was now entering enough that uh, you you could get a lot of uh, cheap re-airings of those on cable as as cable started expanding in the 80s. So it was just constantly available uh, because of the explosion of cable channels channels that needed content.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what I also remember is. I believe it was the school library had a series of books about those classic monster movies. And it was like, it would have the, like the, you know, Frankenstein or the invisible man, but there was also like this orange part of the cover is what I recall. And I remember diving into those
0: as a young child. Um, Is there anything uh, about the characters themselves that you want us to highlight in this discussion?
2: I, why I get, think Jack Russell do, right? might be one of my favorite MCU characters. Just like the way he comes in, he has. I, like he has a humility. About his presence there, like they get to a point where they say, oh, you actually have the most kills out of anyone here. And someone looks at him like you. He's like, yeah, yeah, I do. And So there's like this humble confidence where it's like, I didn't need to brag about this, but I'm also not going to downplay it.
0: Now I will say, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, there is a little bit of mystery about how he got invited in and what they think his kills are because he he does kind of say like, "Well, I'm not killing monsters like these," and it's like, "Well, what what are you?" Like, I think
2: at some point he says like, "When when I hunt, it's as a werewolf."
0: Yeah, but it's not like clear all what, my
2: kills are are from werewolf form.
0: Yeah, but it's not kill. What is it like? Uh, what are his kills? Is he killing bad guys? Is it killing? You know, because everyone else, it seems to be like my kills are monsters.
2: Yeah, uh, like I I went and hunted down. A a Bigfoot, <laughs>
0: um, and and so there is a little ambiguity that's left there about what his uh, um it, what his credentials were. I guess to get in, yeah, get how, like
2: how stuff. is this tallied? It, yeah. it begs <laughs> some of those like administrative questions because they have like medallions mm-hmm. that signify that they are inducted. They have enough enough kills to to be present, and everything's like, who's checking this? What's and, the, and what's he, the provenance he... on all of this?
0: When he establishes like his friendship with Ted, like part of me was like, is, did he con his way in? Is that what we're supposed to be reading this as? But it, it doesn't really matter. But it is something that I did kind of like, I still have the question there.
2: Mm-hmm. And then I also love when, when he's trying to protect Elsa and she, she asks if it works. And he just kind of, he's like, he's kind of sad about it. He's like once, like it, <laughs> it worked once, like it, it suggests to me that he's tried it more than once. Uh-huh. But it did work once. Yeah, and it, it has not worked other
0: times that he he ended up killing someone that he he really wishes he hadn't.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. so he I, his speech inside the mausoleum about, you know, like family relationships and something. Like, I don't know what it is, but this is this guy's great. You know, he's just got a, yeah, I I think he has like, he, he doesn't have a lot of bravado or anything like yeah. that. In fact, I think he has zero bravado, zero machismo. <laughs> but but he's like competent and confident to some extent and he is like trying to be in control of of situations like oh we're fine i've got 5 days
0: yeah i i really really enjoyed his performance um but i may have liked uh elsa even more um and that is uh laura donnelly as elsa uh, they they have wonderful chemistry and it's not like not romantic, romantic. Yeah, not not like romantic firing off the screen chemistry or, or anything, but just something about how they're choosing to play those two characters makes me want to see more of them in a the scene together.
2: It's, it's like trust chemistry. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and like at the end, you can tell like she's glad that Jack survived and he asked Ted explicitly if she survived and you can tell that he's relieved that Elsa... Uh, you know, was, wasn't killed. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's the implication that we may have some more Elsa and Jack stories that we could tell within this. I hope Marvel chooses to, but it seems like Disney's tightening the the,
2: <laughs> the purse strings but on. But this is the sort of stuff that should sneak through.
0: Yeah, I know, but uh, well, it does seem like uh, they're looking around and like, wait, why Why are we producing that? Is that going to give us any new subscribers? I don't know, but I like it. <laughs> I'm glad it's on Disney+. Plus. <laughs>
1: Well, I would argue that doing these kind of one-shot specials is a way for them to balance that that financial interest out that they want to not put out as many movies, not put out as many TV shows. Okay, well then, when you're not doing a TV show, put out a special.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you this know, it is
1: will fill, it will fill the gap.
2: Th- this had two sets and ten actors. Yep, and you know it's like this is pretty small scale, and
0: and, and it was also a new director so you're letting them get chops for like (laughs) is this someone that we're gonna you know give give a bigger opportunity to in the future but also that means it's a lower lower uh budget i'm sure for the production as a whole but also paying your director like this isn't bringing in a blockbuster director who's used to uh you know 100 million dollar plus budgets and then Um, if you
2: if you want to test out characters sorry john what was that
0: Nor is it
1: giving a first time director a $200 million budget for a blockbuster Mm -hmm. tentpole.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Potential flop. (laughs) And and I think this is a really good way to test out characters because sometimes like, okay, six episodes is, is a lot of commitment to play with characters that might not hit really great, but 55 minutes, you know, okay, well maybe you try out moon Knight in this instead mm-hmm. of having to do a lot of Moon Knight lore, you can say, okay, let's get a little taste and yeah, see and what and do. we do with that, and you can build lore into it, but also it's like, well, we can give people more if they want it, but if you've given them more than they care for, you can't, you can't, like, unserve that plate.
1: Or you don't have enough story for the six hours
2: you need to fill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, I'd uh, rather have, I'd rather have At this point, like five of these and three shows, then like two of these and eight shows.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I was gonna say of the post uh, endgame Marvel products, this and the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special are two of my very favorite. Like they're they're at the top, uh, you know, in the top cluster there of uh, Marvel products in what has been, I think, a creatively uneven stretch uh, since they finished their grand narrative, uh, the, these work really well.
2: I think it could also be a really good way to get. I mean, if it means movie characters, it means movie characters. But to give a, a chance to say, "Hey, I haven't seen Shang Chi in a long time," it, it'd be great to see him interact with like two new Marvel characters on on you know, a relatively small scale. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't need to see him fight a dragon, but. If I could just see Shang Chi, like, hey, I'm doing some stuff. I'm doing some 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 cool fights, and also I interacted with these two other Marvel characters this hour. Yeah, and um, you it, know, like, it fills we- in the world in a satisfying way.
0: Yeah, and we we did a whole episode about uh, like movie calendar, where it's like, okay, uh, I associate a particular movie with a certain time of year, and it feels right to watch that at this time of year. At this point, Marvel's actually has like so many productions and it's so sprawling it can be hard to get a handle of like do i want to watch a marvel thing like which one how but to have like this and like the guardians of the galaxy holiday special it gives you like an instant time of year like in like oh you know what i might want to go spend an hour uh on this uh and and you know make it part of that kind of like seasonal feeling with it in a way that do I want to go watch 23 films? <laughs> it doesn't necessarily feel like a handy uh, media choice.
2: Well, and you could, you could even use it to fill in little stories that have been told in, or, or referenced in the Marvel properties. If, if they used a 4th of July one of these to just say, okay, for one hour, we're actually going to have uh, the, the Winter Soldier interact with Isaiah Bradley in the 70s. And like we're gonna we're gonna have that little story I'm like well that sounds pretty cool actually
0: yeah know. Right. I like um, that, that they 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 have created enough space and enough characters that just you know doing a little mix or as as we have with this one you know it's just a brand new uh introduction of of, of a character uh, well of a couple of characters that I don't know if Marvel ever is going to do anything with Jack Russell and Elsa bloodstone again but I liked these characters. I wouldn't mind to see them show up in a different thing. Uh, Like it it would make sense if they showed up in a Blade movie, if they ever actually go into production on that. (laughs) Wouldn't wouldn't feel out of place there.
1: Uh, All right. I would like to circle back to the characters because as I've probably mentioned before on this podcast, I'm working on a dissertation about the influence of the Gothic on superheroes. This is right up that alley. Mm -hmm. So I have some thoughts.
0: Okay. Let's let's, let's go into it.
1: All right, so building off what you were talking about, Andrew, the Jack Russell appearing kind of humble uh, and such. He's certainly dressed differently than the other monster hunters. They're all in their hunting gear, and he's in a three-piece suit. Uh, Very stylish suit, I should say. But this (laughs) goes into this aspect with the werewolf about what I would say is about masculinity, where um, it's about the divide of... Masculine roles, so he's appearing, um, kind. Like I, I, this is probably going too far, but you know, emasculated. He's in that direction, whereas the werewolf form is hyper virile, hyper masculine, Hmm. Uh, and so it's playing on these roles, and with the idea that uh, no one can perform all of the gender roles that society expects. Uh, you know, Barbie movie had a big speech about how women can't reach all these role, these expectations that, uh, society has for, uh, femininity and the same is true for masculinity and the werewolf here is playing on that. Uh, it's similar to the, uh, incredible Hulk Bruce Banner dynamic, uh, dichotomy in, uh, that character. Which is also the, a werewolf uh, character in some ways. Yeah, the Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, and so uh, his his uh, kind of humility, and like he's also the actor is visually smaller than everyone else. All these other monster hunters, um, they like they're all most of them are very masculine. Even uh, there's another woman uh, who's not Elsa. I. Sorry, I don't know her name. She's just in white fur <laughs> and very tall. And so uh, I will she get has that for this, you in just a second. Yeah. She has That's Azarel. Yeah. She has this masculine appearance to her. Mm-hmm. And so they're playing with these gender roles and especially what that dichotomy means with the werewolf uh, where uh, if one side's hyper-masculine, the other side cannot also be masculine. <laughs>
2: I I really like that concept for, for how he presents himself. You know, it is, it is that contrast and, and it works well with the way. And this, I feel like this is, uh, I was about to say like, you know, your standard well-adjusted werewolf, like that's a thing <laughs> that we have enough of in media, but you know, they, they seem to have like a sense of that dichotomy. And, and, and so like they draw the distinctions like, well, that's, that's that's not like me. Me, like I'm like this, and and that's a a different kind of thing, and so they might intentionally lean into what is the opposite of of that version that I'm trying to reject or or isolate. Jeff, anything you want to add?
0: Oh, I was going to say that that um, that tension is something that gets played with very frequently in superheroes with the the dual identities, where often there mm. is the. Uh, more sedate secret identity. The whether it is you know Clark Kent or or Bruce Wayne, uh, when you see Bruce Wayne performed as a fop but rather than like a hyper competent businessman. Like there mm-hmm. are definitely different versions depending on the portrayals that we get for these. Yeah. But you know, it's Clark Kent is uh super geeky and socially awkward, and Bruce Wayne is is an ignorant fop. Uh, versus the incredibly competent Batman and the uh you know hypermasculine Superman like literally you know just, his name is Superman he doesn't get much more uh <laughs> hyperbolically masculine uh than that i th- i think it's a a kind of presentation of masculinity that lends itself uh inherently to the the some of the tropes of the superhero genre yes i agree
1: um the other topic to really address with particularly with this show is uh, the cultural role of monsters and monster hunters, because that has changed throughout the 20th century. Uh, and now we have the t- this 21st century representation. Um, so when you look at the role of monster hunters, um, let's just look at the epitome of it. Abraham Bowen and and Bram Stoker's Dracula. He was representing, um, all the patriarchal ideas about society, uh. White, male, educated, wealthy, um, you know, just, and that, that was the type of person who would protect society, but really they're protecting their own status in society in the end, but that monster hunters in the first half of the 20th century, that was kind of who was going to be a monster hunter and what their role was going to be was Uh, they are the best of society and they're meant to protect society and culture. Uh, by the time we get to the 1970s when this whole monster craze and comic book starts up it's very much changing there in society there's a lot of questioning of the traditional roles and traditional institutions uh watergate vietnam war bringing that up and Counterculture so revolution yeah and so with those countercultural revolutions there, it's also bringing in more voices more diversity and part of what we see in the horror stories is the monster gets a voice Mm -hmm. before this, the monster was the, uh, often an object and they were what Julia Kristeva calls abject. They were, uh, outside society. And, um, when they start getting their own voice and telling their own stories, they get folded into society as part of that counterculture and the monster hunter representing, those traditional institutions becomes the villain. And we see that here where uh, the monsters, Ted, the man thing and uh, Jack the werewolf are the heroes, the protagonists of the story. Um, And I think it's really interesting that the actor they got um, is Mexican and they let him keep his accent. Mm -hmm. They wanted this to be a Latino werewolf. And so that's bringing up that idea of, um minorities fighting against this patriarchal power mm-hmm. of uh you know the the monster hunter with the most presence is the white male. Yeah. But all these monster hunters uh are now outside society. They are portrayed as monstrous. Um whether and that's physically marked that most of them have facial scars or facial tattoos. They're marking or, themselves uh, as
0: Azrael almost looks like a cadaver.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and she's just tall, mm-hmm. which is, you know, is not what the standard beauty for a woman is. Yeah. And so they're uh, physically marked out as separate from society, whereas the monsters now are trying to fit in or at least more sympathetic to this diversity point of view.
0: Yeah, and that's something that I, I will say. Even the some of the universal monster era, you started to see some sympathy for the monsters that uh, yes, these were objects uh, like fear inducing creatures, but sometimes there was some sympathy uh, given, you know, Mm -hmm. towards Frankenstein's monster in the the James. And, and even to, to a degree, uh, you know, something like King Kong, you know, where the, there's um, a sense that, uh this wasn't like a a, a being of evil uh that there was there's just misunderstanding between our culture and their culture starts to appear but i think you're right in saying that there's been a major shift towards often centering and, and turning into the protagonist uh you know the, the characters that would have been the you know the, the protagonists would have been the the monster hunters or the potential victims of the monsters now often we we see much more from the point of view uh of uh, of the the creatures Mm-hmm. all right any final thoughts about werewolf by night
2: i really like it <laughs> well
0: like i said th- this definitely is one of my favorite of uh the recent marvel uh productions um which i'm a fan of a lot of what marvel's done uh but there's something about this that just it really was the the right it, it was like a little a surprise to have this black and white uh, you know, werewolf, uh, special, co- you know, show up on Disney Plus is like, oh, I didn't know I wanted that, but I- I'm really glad they made it. Well, one one final point
1: about this changing role of monsters and monster hunters. Uh, I mentioned before that most of these monster hunters are not named in the show; they are nameless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have the man thing is called. Te- he's never called man thing. He's called Ted. Right. Jack is called Jack. It's very humanizing names that mm. are trying to make him seem normal.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think that is a good note that um, like for for comic book fans, we see that face instance, and like, oh, it's the man thing, um, who is a character that rarely is the center of a Marvel story. But it seems like a lot of writers want to like float around and like just do a man thing story. Um, uh, and I like that uh, he's just Ted in this. Um, when mm-hmm. when Elsa, when he, like Jack tells Elsa, like directly, he's like, when you see him make eye contact with him and call him by name. she's like What's his name? And he's, just, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning that
1: the man thing's tagline is, anything that knows fear will burn at the touch of the man thing. And you know, being able to call him Ted, you're not going to be afraid of
0: Ted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and we, like we see very explicitly that uh Jack has no fear of of man thing of oh, head.
2: Yeah. Like gives uh, a hug. And,
0: uh-huh yeah, like the the <laughs> touch the, there's no burning <laughs> this is just my buddy, <laughs> hey, hey, old pal uh and, and oh I, and one more, like there's so much about this that I like, but that last scene of uh Jack coming out of the tent after he's transformed back into his human form and sitting around the campfire with coffee. With, with Ted and having this one-sided conversation, that we know Man things grunts, meaning something to to Jack, uh, but but we don't know what what Ted is saying. It is the timing of everything, the performance of everything in there is just one of my favorite bits of Marvel filmmaking in the in well, everything that they've done.
1: And that's another one of those scenes where it's the little things, like Man Thing picking up a coffee cup and <laughs> passing it over to Jack, mm-hmm. his massive hand just
0: awkwardly passing this cup over and seeing the fancy coffee maker there by the, the campfire <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> all right well that is going to wrap up this episode thank you again for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we'd like to thank Scott Toffy you composed our theme music uh, thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story so long
2: Sorry, baby started crying, so I, I, I'm muted at the moment.